winners today, right? You're kind of stuck here. You're, you're the best of the rest. Uh, and sp- speaking of winning, no, I'm glad you're here. I'm, I'm proud of you for being here. Uh, speaking of winning, we're in a culture where winning is seemingly everything, are we not? Um, and often we want to win at every expense. Take uh, the year 2000. In the 2000 Sydney Paralympics, Spain bagged the gold in basketball by defeating Russia by a score of 87 to 63. The 12-member team, they rejoiced uh, and they proudly wore their gold medals and accepted their bouquets of flowers and appreciation. However, behind all the behind pompous celebrations hid a callous con, uh, a guy by the name of Carlos I'll spare you my Spanish last name, and just we'll just call him Carlos R., okay? Carlos R., he was an undercover journalist and one of the team members of the Spanish basketball team. He revealed the truth about the winning team upon their arrival home. The players were able to participate in the Sydney Paralympics as they claimed to have an intellectual disability. Every one of them claimed this. However, Carlos blew the whistle on the claim, And he published a story that said that out of the 12 players who played, only two of them actually had an intellectual disability. The other 10 had no disability at all. Carlos also revealed that he was invited to play in the Spanish Paralympics himself a month before, despite having no disability himself. So we have this tendency, this want to win at any cost, even if it means shelving morality. There's two disciples in the Bible that knew that that they were called to serve the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and they too, they wanted to win. But they were going about winning in the wrong way. James and John, they came up to Jesus confidently one day in Mark chapter 10, and they say, hey, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. By the way, Worst way to approach a teacher and ask for a favor, okay? Hey, we want you to do whatever we want you to do. Literally, that's how they start their conversation with the Lord. And Jesus, I love this, he actually humors them. So he says, he says, what do you you want me to do? (laughs) And they reply, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other sit at your left in glory. Essentially what James and John are asking Jesus is that they could be his number one and his number two. They want to sit at his left hand. They want to sit at his right hand. They're essentially seeking self-glory. They're seeking to win an obvious argument that they've been having with the other disciples who were arguing about who would be greatest in God's kingdom. And confident that they were the ones, James and John, they boldly approached Jesus, you can imagine, with their chests puffed out to ask this little question. And after a little conversation with James and John, Jesus calls all the boys together, the disciples. He says this. He says, you know the rulers in this world. They lord it over the people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it'll be different. Whoever wants to be leader among you, (coughs) James and, and John and the rest of you who are arguing, you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first amongst you must be the slave of everybody else. And then Jesus does his finishing move, right? Jesus inserts the argument killer here. Your parents, do your parents have argument killers at home? 
You get in an argument with them, right? You know what I'm talking about. My parents had argument killers. Uh, they worked for any argument, and I bet your parents have some of the same ones. Say you're, you're at home, you're arguing with your parents, you don't understand why, and so you'll say, but mom, why? Why can't I do that thing? And they'll say, because I what? Said so. Yes, exactly. Or they'll say, because I'm the parent and you're the... Exactly. And if they're in a really bad mood, they'll say, listen... I brought you into this world. I'm pretty sure our parents hang out, right? They, they all have the same social, same social circle. You know this. Our parents have argument killers. Well, anyway, with the disciples arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus says, sit down, kids, and listen. You want to be first? Then be a servant. You want to be great? Be a slave. And then he gives the argument killer. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. Ouch. Even I, God, by the way, in the flesh, hi, yeah, me, even I didn't come to be served, but I'm here to serve. I'm here to die for others. That also includes you, arguers, over about who's going to be first or last. I came to die for you. Well, James and John and the rest of the disciples, they learned that day that there's a proper way to win. There's a proper path to greatness, and there's a proper definition of greatness. Greatness isn't found in achieving riches or self-made glory, but true greatness is found in being like the Son of God who came to serve as the purpose of his coming. And the path of greatness doesn't involve self-glorification or these vain arguments about who is the greater clod of dirt shaped into human form by God. The disciples learned that day that if they are to win and win correctly, if their lives are to, believe, to be lived in unity after the same purpose of Christ's life, then they would have to humble themselves and become a servant to one another and to others just as Jesus, their teacher, had done for them. Now, the Apostle Paul was definitely aware of this story that was recorded in the book of Mark about the same time that Paul originally pens the letter to the church at Philippi that we've been studying while he's sitting in a Roman prison. Paul's purpose so far in writing this letter to the Philippian church while he's in prison in Rome around 61 A.D., has been to persuade the Philippians that they should, quote, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves, as he says in verse 3 of chapter 2. Paul continues and he tells the Philippians, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others, Philippians 2.4. Paul's attempting to persuade the church at Philippi to be humble and to put the interests of others first, just as Jesus once told his disciples. Paul then holds up the example of Christ himself in the passage we're going to study this morning. Verse 5, he says, you must have the same attitude as Christ. And then he explains the attitude of Christ. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Paul is saying 
As we contend for the faith, as we stand boldly against our enemies, and as we refuse to be intimidated, as we live as citizens of heaven, there's a right way to go about it. There's a right way to win the race that we're in. There's a correct way to proceed as we stand against our enemies and as we struggle and suffer together. He says, first, agree with one another. Have unity. Love one another and work together, verses 1 and 2 of the second chapter. Then he says, don't be selfish in your pursuit to spread the gospel and win against the enemy. Don't seek to impress others. Be humble. Think about others even more than you think about yourself. Don't look out for just your own interests, but for the interests of others too. And then he says, as you are striving to win, to complete the task, to fight the fight, you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Paul brings forward an intriguing thought. Jesus sought to win too. He sought to put the enemy away he sought to quell the effects of sin and death and proclaim victory over evil and evil things. But he went about it in the correct way and with the correct kind of attitude, with the attitude of, of a servant. In verses 3 and 4, Paul lays the claim upon the Christians at Philippi here not to be served, but to serve like Jesus. Open up the Gospels and you'll rarely see anyone serving the Lord Jesus, but in almost every instance, you'll see Jesus serving others. Paul is saying effectively, church at Philippi and by inference, Nebraska Christian students who profess belief in my name, now you serve just as Christ gave you an example to serve. Go to verse 5. In verses 5 through 11, our scripture this morning Paul shows clearly what that means when he says you must have the same attitude as Christ. And in so doing, he gives us one of the most beautiful pictures in Scripture of the nature and the character of Christ and one of the most demanding challenges to those who would be his followers. It's as if Paul is saying to his reading audience, you know, we're going to seek victory, we're going to win, but we're going to do it the right way. We're going to do it in the way that Christ did. How did he do it? How did Christ achieve his victory? Verse 6. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Though he was God is also translated, although he existed in the form of God. This is Paul affirming the deity, the godliness of Jesus. This is Paul affirming the eternal nature of Jesus. Jesus is God. He always has been. He didn't become God. He's always been God. Then Paul continues, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Uh, MacArthur explains, though Christ had all the rights, privileges, and honors of deity, which he was worthy of and could never be disqualified from, his attitude was not to cling to those things of his position, but he willingly gave them up for a season. Now let's look at that phrase. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. If, you, if you're like me, that makes absolutely no sense to you. So I read it in a different translation. New King James, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That helped me. 
It's not robbery for Jesus, who is God, to consider himself equal with God. Jesus isn't grasping at the fact He's, he's not robbing God of his soul glory by saying he's God when he isn't because Jesus is God. He can't rob something from God that's already his. Now think about this. Adam, the first man, his sin was that he wanted to be like God and not in the good way. <laughs> it's not that Adam sought godliness like we do when we say we want to be Christ-like, when we want to be similar to the Lord in character, and indeed, that's not the type of godlikeness that Adam and Eve were after. But by eating the fruit, Adam and Eve wanted to be more like God in a way that would more equate them with God, in a way that would share the glory of God. Adam's sin wasn't that he wanted to be simply like his creator, but he wanted to be more equal with him by eating this fruit, by knowing good and evil. Knowledge only reserved for the Lord. The devil told Eve in Genesis 3-4, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The next verse says, the woman was convinced. She got all that she wanted. She could be like God, she could know something that only God knew and was supposed to know. She could share in his glory, she thought. But by both Adam and Eve eating a fruit that God said don't eat, Adam and Eve rob God. They grasp at something that wasn't theirs to have, something not offered to them by God, but by the devil. And not only do they rob God, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they're attempting really to rob God of his glory and of his knowledge that's only reserved for him. Adam's act was self-serving, self-elevating, God-detracting. But now, in this letter to the Philippians, Paul says Jesus actually, in contrast, renounces equality with God, and he becomes a man. The first Adam... He sought to exalt himself. He sought to rob God of his glory, and sin was the result. The fall of man resulted. But Jesus, in contrast, who's called the second Adam in Scripture, didn't cling to equality with God, even though he was equal to God, even though he deserves equality with God. But Jesus actually renounced his equality that he did have, that he did deserve prior to becoming a man, to become man so that God's purposes and will could be exalted so that mankind wouldn't be lost, <coughs> excuse me, but they would be saved. Jesus sought the glorification of the Father at cost to himself instead of seeking self-glorification at cost to the Father like Adam did. Jesus does the opposite of what the first Adam did. Now remember why Paul's saying this. He says, Church of Philippi, if you want to win, if you want to do well and serve God right as you're standing boldly, as you're contending the faith, you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Paul's saying there is an example of Christ that you're to follow. This is what he did. This is how he did it. You are to be like this. You're to have the same attitude. You're to be like the second Adam who only thought of God and his glory and not of himself and his self-glory like the first. 
And I want you to do this, even if it comes at cost to you. Now, go to the next verse, verse 7. Instead, he continues, Jesus, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God, and he died a criminal's death on the cross. Other translations say he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So Jesus, who's humble, whose example the Philippians and we, by inference, are to follow as we fight this good fight of the faith, as we boldly share the good news, as we stand against our enemies as they did. Jesus, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave, and he was born of a human being. What what does that mean? That he gave up his divine privileges. And what does it mean for us if we're to follow in Jesus' example who did this? Well, the most prolific theologians have fought for centuries, 2,000 years in fact, over what it means that Christ emptied himself Uh, And so today we seek to settle the debate, okay, right here at a rural high school in the middle of Nebraska with an amateur preacher, okay? No, we're not going to settle the debate today. But what I'm convinced this means is that when Paul says that Jesus emptied himself or that he gave up his divine privileges, it's not that Jesus ceased to be God when he became man, not at all. Jesus didn't cease to be God, But he added humanity to his godly nature. He was both man and God. He wasn't a hybrid like some of those ugly SUVs uh, your parents drive. But he was 100% God and 100% man. He had two complete natures. But, Paul says, when Jesus became man, he gave up the privileges associated with being God. This doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his deity. He didn't subtract God from his nature. Nor does it mean that he exchanges his deity for humanity. He doesn't exchange godliness for humanness. But what it does mean is that he renounces or he sets aside his godly privileges in several areas in order to become a slave, as he did. So what are these godly privileges? That he set aside. Well, Jesus set aside the privilege of heavenly glory. These are great things to write down. Heavenly glory. While on earth, he gave up the glory of face-to-face relationship with God the Father and the continuous outward display and personal enjoyment of that glory. Jesus set aside the privilege of independent authority. During his incarnation, him becoming a man, Christ completely submitted himself to the will of the Father. Jesus set aside the privilege of eternal riches. Jesus traded in the riches of heaven for the life of a poor man who owned very little and who had no place to lay his head. Imagine giving up heaven to live the life of a pauper. Jesus set aside the privilege of having a favorable relationship with God. Jesus, who knew no sin, who became sin, he felt the wrath for human sin while on the cross. He traded his favorable relationship with God to become the object on which God would express his wrath of sin upon. These are the privileges 
that Jesus gave up, gave up as God to become a man. Now, there's no comparison to this in all the world, that God would give up his privileges so that he could step into humanity as lowly as we are compared to the glories of God, but to try to get an inkling of understanding as to what this must have meant for God to do. Um, I, need a, I need a senior, maybe a football player. How about Peter? I just saw you. That green shirt spoke to me. Come on down. He, he literally exhaled like, seriously, dude? <laughs> Hi, Peter. How's it going? Peter, what position are you on the team? You're a linebacker and tight end, a little Iron Man football going on. Are you a captain? Sometimes. Sometimes, okay. And a senior, right? All right, so you don't know this, but Coach Falk has given me the authority over the football team for the day, okay? So I'm the coach now. Did you know this, Mr. Falk? Okay, that's right. I'm, I'm Coach Pastor Sean now, okay? Um, what's, what's the team record? What's your record right now? Three and two? Okay, not anymore, okay? Uh, now that I'm coach, uh, we're probably never going to win another game. Um, all my coaching experience comes from playing John Madden football on PlayStation, so we're going to do a lot of Hail Marys, okay? And uh, that's it. We're going to throw it up for grabs. We're going to go for it on fourth down every time. Fourth and 60, we don't care. We're going for it, okay? And we're throwing a Hail Mary. Anyway, Peter, as your coach, I don't know if you know this, but I have locker room privileges now. Did you know that? <laughs> He's like, whatever, just get over with it. Uh, so I expressed the privilege, and Peter, I, I kind of went into your locker, and uh, I got some of your stuff out. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but you are now. Uh, I got some of your stuff. Do you recognize any of this? this is this your helmet? That's not your helmet? Are you sure? Is this a junior high helmet? Oh, okay. Stand by. <coughs> Peter, is this your helmet? <laughs> okay, that's good. Number 24, huh? All right. At least that's what the, that's what that says. This says eight. That's not you, probably. Is this you? Or is this you? That's you. Okay. Perfect. This is going swimmingly. The pipe. All right, this is your stuff, buddy. Here's the thing, though, Peter. I like you. I really do. Okay, I really appreciate how you work hard in senior Bible class, um, but I got bad news for you. I do today. Uh, as the coach of the high school football team, I'm, I'm taking you off the team, I'm afraid. Okay, um, all the privileges that you have as the QB and as the sometime, or excuse me, as the, uh, you said linebacker, and I had QB on my head, as uh, the linebacker, as the tight end, right, and as the captain sometimes, they're gone. Okay, here's why. Uh, when I was your age, I had lots of good-looking hair like that, too, okay? And now uh, things are a little, a little thinner up top, and I'm super jealous of you, okay? You know that scripture that says God knows every hair on your head? Not as impressive as you age, okay? It's just it's getting easier for God to do. So because of my jealousy, amen, Mr. Falk? Right. So because of my jealousy, uh, I'm taking you out, and I'm moving you off the team, unfortunately. But, but here's what I'm going to do for you since I like you, since you work hard in senior Bible class, okay? I'm going to let you exchange your high school football gear for the gear of the junior hire, okay? And so I would, I would appreciate it if you would try to put this on for me, okay? It looks pretty good. You can do it. It's a lot of muscle. 
maybe. Beautiful. <laughs> Looks like me trying to fit into a, <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. Does this fit on you at all? Just like that. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, a, I'm changing you from high school to junior high, okay, because I'm a nice guy, and I'm going to make you the starting kicker of the junior high football team. It's a very prestigious position, uh, and you get all of the privileges that come along with being the junior high kicker on the team, all right? Uh, does, does junior high actually have a kicker currently? Just say yes. Okay, so you can't do that. You got to be the backup kicker now, okay? Because someone is up and coming over there, and we don't want to we don't want to do all that. So, Peter, I, I have more bad news for you, though. This isn't it. Not only are you the the junior high football kicker now, backup kicker, but I can't technically let you stay a senior anymore, right? If you're gonna play junior high football, and so since Mr. Heckerdley also made me superintendent and principal of N for the day, uh, that means uh, primarily that I'm gonna walk around here with coffee. Uh, pretending like I'm busy, and no, uh, it, it does mean that. Don't tell him I said that; I'll be fired. But it also means that I have the the authority to demote you, okay, to to seventh grade. And so, as coach, pastor, superintendent, principal, Sean, um, I'm taking all of your senior privileges away, and I'm putting you back in the seventh grade. That stinks, doesn't it? I mean, literally. Have you been around junior hires? I'm just kidding, junior hires. We love you, okay. So uh, what I need you to do is, can you grab your book bag and can you go sit with your new class? Could you do that? Someone hand him his book bag. Thank you. Give him a round of applause. This is, this is humiliating. All right. Junior hires, you guys got, you got room for him over there? All right. So uh, Peter, since you're, you're giving up your privileges as being a senior now, you're not going to graduate at, at the end of the year like you intended, okay? Any scholarships? Do you have any scholarships in the mix? No? Any colleges picked out? Where are you going? No, you're not, right? You're not going to Milford anymore. Those privileges are gone. Um, do you have a car? What do you have? A what? A Dell Soul. All right, that's cool. I won't make fun of that. Do you have car keys? Let me have those, please. Do you have a driver's license? I'll also take that. Do you have a job? Do you have money in your wallet right now representing that job? I will take all of that. Appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Peter, you've paid, you've paid quite a price this morning. He's like, why did I come? You, sh you should have got out of this is what you should have done. You're not going to, uh, I, I guess one more thing. Who's your best friend in, uh, in, in your senior class? Who? Sorry. Daniel. Daniel, stand up. Are you going to hang out with a seventh grader? No offense to our seventh grader. I'm sure they're lovely. What's that? No. Okay. So uh, so you lost your best friend. Who's it? What's your name? Benjamin. Scoot over a little bit. Benjamin, sit by Peter. You're actually, don't ruin this for me, Peter Paul. All right. You guys are now best friends, okay? You have a new inherited best friend. Peter, you paid pride a quite a price to give up your privileges as a senior to become a junior higher once again and quite frankly it's pretty humbling isn't it and it would be pretty humiliating to actually lose your privileges as a senior publicly like this and become a lowly seventh grader like this again no offense okay to, to you seventh graders 
But Peter, to become a seventh grader, you had to give up the privileges of a senior that you formerly enjoyed as a senior. And this, in essence, is what God did for us. But it wasn't the 12th grade level that God gave up to go back to the seventh grade to be with seventh graders. It was godly privileges that he gave up to be with us. The chasm of privilege that Peter enjoys as a senior is wide compared to the privileges that seventh graders enjoy. It's huge, but it's minute considering the divine privileges of God compared to those of a human being. And Christ humbled himself. He put on humanity to serve you, to cleanse you of your sin, to give you eternal purpose and fellowship with God forever. And what's more is that Jesus bound himself to being a man forever. Forever Jesus will have two natures. He'll forever be both divine and human. Peter, imagine being a seventh grader for the rest of your life. Okay, we're going to have to get you lots of noxema, lots of acne medication. You looked at, is noxema even a thing anymore? No, okay, just for us. It did its thing. I don't have acne no more. Anyway, Jesus gave up divine privileges. He humbled himself to become a slave, and he was born of a human being. What does that mean for us? How are we to live in light of Christ's example as we seek to live for and like Christ? Because we don't have divine privileges like Christ did. We didn't come from heaven as God did to become a man. We didn't then die on a cross for all of humanity to be, to be saved. What's Paul saying then in his letter? Paul's saying this, listen, think about the extent of service that Christ performed for you. God became a man. He bound himself to humanity for the rest of eternity for you to serve you, to save you, to express his love upon you. And not just that, but the infinite one, the holy one, the unblemished one, the undying and the immortal one became mortal and he died on a cross and died the death of a criminal so that you could be saved, so that you could have eternal life, and so that you could be forgiven of your sins. Now, in light of this example, Paul's saying, in light of Christ's deep service to others, to you, in light of his deep humility before God, now you, church at Philippi, now you, Nebraska Christian students reading this same message today, now you, Go and do the same. Go and do the same as Christ, even if it means subjecting yourself to suffering, even if it means humiliating yourself by giving up some of your societal or worldly privileges. Go and serve God like Jesus served God, even if it means giving up the very privilege of human life itself. Take the humble position as God's bondservant. Put yourself at his feet and under his direction. Make yourself willing to go and do anything that God calls you to, just like Christ did. That's why Paul shares this stuff about Christ here in this text. Now to bring all this to a conclusion, watch what Paul says comes as a result of Christ serving God like this and, and humbling himself as he did. And maybe the natural question that you have right now is, why, why should I do this? Man, if I had the choice between the American dream, getting rich, being successful, and enjoying earth right now, 
or between the choice of making myself a servant to God, being sent to places where I don't want to go, where I'll suffer, uh, give up the privilege maybe of even being, of, of having human life. Why would I ever consider the path of Christ if all that brings is suffering? Paul, if you're trying to convince me here <laughs> to live after Christ who suffered, uh, you're doing it wrong. This doesn't sound good to me. It's not appealing. You're calling me into suffering. You're calling me into following Christ's path. Paul, do you understand what happened to Jesus? How he suffered and how he died for following the path that you're saying that I now need to follow. Like, did you even read the Bible, Paul? And what's worse, Paul, you're in prison when you're writing this. Like literally, you're getting three hots and a cot every night. What benefit is there to contending the faith, to finishing the race, to remaining faithful to the Lord, to humbling myself under him and serving him as a bondservant, if so doing, leads to suffering? Why? Why should I? Look at verse 9. Therefore. Therefore is an important contextual connecting word. Therefore what? Why does Paul say, therefore? Well, Paul's connecting two thoughts together. In your Bibles or in your notes, on verses 5 through 8, I want you to put the letter A. Verses 5 through 8, or you can underline that or highlight that in one color. 5 through 8, the letter A. Then circle the word, therefore. And then in verses 9 through 11, I want you to highlight that a different color or put the letter B. So A, verses 5 through 8, circle, therefore. 9 through 11 is B. Paul is saying because A is true, therefore B is going to be true. If you do A, just like Jesus did, therefore then in B, it's going to be true of you just as it was true of Christ. You tracking with me? Do A, therefore B will become true. Go back to verse 9. Almost done. Paul says because Jesus didn't cling to equality with God, because he gave up his divine privileges, because he became a slave of the Father, because he served and was humbled and suffered, therefore, verse 9, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Christ chose the path that Paul lays out here, because he humbled himself, because he came to serve you and me, because he became a slave, a bondservant of God, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. Jesus didn't seek self-glorification as James and John did, as they requested to selfishly be at the right and left hand of Jesus. Jesus didn't bargain his way to glorification. He didn't seek to serve his own agenda, living after his lusts and pleasures like Adam did. He didn't live for himself or pursue the American dream or the Roman dream at the time. But he humbled himself under the will of the Father. And because he did, God elevated him to the place of highest honor. And now that he's in the place of highest honor, every knee will bow and every tongue will declare that he's Lord. And watch this, to the glory of God the Father. In God, elevating Christ, God is glorified. So in closing, going back to that question, is there any benefit 
for Christ taking the path that he did, for making himself a slave, for being demon—excuse uh, me, for being demoted from the varsity football team of heaven and having to sit with the junior hires in football gear that's too small for you uh, for eternity. How are you doing, by the way, Peter? Doing good? Okay. Was there any benefit for the Lord Jesus? Yes. He received the highest honor from the Father when he did this. And now remember, Paul isn't just giving this description of Jesus in these verses simply for the theological education of the Philippians as to what happened to Jesus. But remember, this picture has shown them how to follow Jesus' pattern of patient and humble obedience before the Lord. And so what Paul is effectively saying to the Philippians, what his entire point is, is that if you humble yourself under God, if you'd make yourself his bondservant, if you would give him your life and let him be your director, the head football coach, the superintendent, the pastor coach, superintendent, principal, and if you'll make him the Lord of your soul, you'll therefore be like Christ, and you'll likewise share in the same glory and riches that Christ inherited by living the way he did. Is there any benefit for you living after Christ's example? Yes, because when you humbled yourself under God, you will then therefore be lifted up and you too will share in the richness and in the glories of heaven with him just as he did. It's amazing. That sounds a whole lot better to me than living the American dream that only lasts for a few decades. And see, live as citizens of heaven. Run the race to win. Contend for and defend the faith. Spread the truth boldly in the face of your enemies. And while you do that, have the same attitude of Christ. Humble yourself before God. Be willing to go and do anything that the Lord calls you to do. Patiently endure suffering, just as Jesus did. Profess today that you are a willing bondservant of the Father. <coughs> and because you have been saved by the grace of God, because you set out to follow the example of Christ, therefore, you too will share in the riches of God, inherit the incredible wealth and grace and kindness of God. You'll receive far more in, he <coughs> excuse me, in heaven when you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Is there any benefit to following Christ, to taking that path? Yes, because you share in the same destiny as Jesus, being elevated to heaven, sharing in his riches and glory forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for it compelling us to live lives after Christ. Father, we thank you for this example of Jesus, who was the quintessential man, who was our perfect example as he lived upon this earth, as he never did anything self-seeking or self-glorifying, but that he only sought to glorify you, and in turn, you glorified him. Father, let us have this heart of humility. Let us not be like John and James at the time of their conversation to try to be the greatest, but let us humble ourselves and let us seek to serve just as you gave us the example to serve. Father, use this text to change us and help us to act upon it. We pray in Jesus' holy name. All God's people said, amen. amen.